In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the day of Pentecost, the 50th day, the 50th day after our celebration of the Passover. Remember that the Passover feast is the celebration of the Lord bringing ancient Israel out of Egypt, bringing them out of slavery and death. He saves them from the angel of death in that night of the Passover when they sacrifice the lamb and they paint the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Christ is our Passover lamb. His blood is what saves us from death. His blood is what saves us from sin and death. And he brings us up out of slavery into eternal life in him. And so the 50th day from the celebration of the Passover, ancient Israel would celebrate another very important feast, which is the celebration of two things. The first of the wheat harvest, the first barley harvest in late spring, and of the giving of the law. The giving of the law on Mount Sinai is celebrated on this 50th day. And the ancient Israel midrash or poetic uh, way of talking about the giving of the law is a flowering of Mount Sinai. This great uh, desert mountain, uh, they said, would flower when the Lord appeared upon it and spoke with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments and all the law. And so that is why we celebrate the giving of the law in our hearts at Pentecost with the flowering of the church. This uh, flowering, this pouring out of the law in Pentecost is necessary to undo what had to be done at the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, we are reading between the stories of Noah and Abraham. Between Noah and Abraham, we get this uh, very interesting story of the peoples of the earth speaking one language. They have come out of the flood. Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their families populate the earth, and they speak one tongue. And they continue the sin that had started in Genesis. You remember that when Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, they have a choice. They can turn to the Lord for all that they need, or they can grab the fruit for themselves. They can take the knowledge of good and evil apart from God. And they choose to attain for themselves or to gain from themselves uh, apart from the Lord when they take the fruit. The possibility is still there here at the Tower of Babel where they have come together to use their ingenuity, to use their resources, to use their their unity to serve themselves, to serve humanity. And they build a tower to themselves, a great uh, engineering marvel, a ziggurat or um, early pyramid here in the Mediterranean plains. And it's a testament to their own technology, to their own ability. We might in our own day think about the own, our own testaments of our own ability and technology. We might think about nuclear power. And on the one hand, we might see the great benefits of energy, but on the other hand, the destruction of a bomb. We might think of genetic engineering, the benefits of uh, healing illness, and on the other hand, selecting the eye color of our children. What can be so powerful in uh, human technology and engineering, on the other hand, can be used for our own destruction. And the Lord sees this and he disrupts their ability uh, by disrupting their language and he uh, spreads them across the world. This is the Lord's answer to our desire uh, to serve ourselves, to serve humanity. Anytime we try to serve humanity, the Lord is going to place in our path uh, those things that would separate us um, from one another to keep us from going farther down that road of sin and consequence. 
But the Lord's desire is for our unity. His desire is for um, our harmony, and it is for our harmony in Him, for our uh, working and living in Him. And so the first kind of healing or antidote to uh, Babylon that we see is here in John's Gospel, chapter 14, at the, at the beginning of what we call the farewell discourse. We've been here in this farewell discourse for several weeks now. In chapters 14, 15, and 16, we've been reading about this long uh, discourse that Jesus gives in the upper room after he has inaugurated the Last Supper, after he has given them the bread and the wine. He instructs them on who he is and who the believer is. He defines for us who he is in the Father and who the believer is. And we see him uh, here already early in chapter 14 uh, defining for us his relationship with the Father. Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, you know the Father because you've seen me, because I and the Father are one. I'm in the Father and he is an I. And so this is the beginning of that figure eight. The Father is in the Son as the Son is in the Father. So the beginning of that figure eight is formed in answer to Philip's question here in John chapter 14, verse 8. He says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Right? And so then he defines for us again who the believer is. And he's been defining the believer for us uh, in several different ways, several different times. What's important for us is to see is the, the radical high bar that Jesus sets. Because sometimes a very low bar is set for the definition of a believer. A kind of anemic, um, poor, cheap grace definition of believer. And the definition of believer here in the gospel is, is quite strong. He says, uh, first of all, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So the first is to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son. And then he gives this really powerful, this really robust definition of a believer, starting in verse 12. And he begins it by saying, truly, truly. Truly, truly, as Jesus' way of saying, listen up, take notes, this is important. What I'm about to say is defining for you. And verse 12 he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Is there a higher bar than that? Is there a higher definition of believer than that? He's saying that the believer will do the things that the Son has done. And he says greater things. Greater things will the believer do than what the Son has done. And he says that they will be done in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And he says, if, that wonderful theological term we've seen before, if, if you ask in my name. And again, we want to look and consider, because so many times we've been given kind of an anemic understanding of what this means. For some people it means, oh, I'd like the color TV and the Mercedes Benz. And then if I tag Jesus' name on the end of it, all will be well, right? Then I get what I want. This is clearly not uh, what Jesus is talking about by asking in his name. The believer is an ambassador. The believer is a diplomat. 
an ambassador or a diplomat that's acting on uh, behalf of the king and the kingdom does not say, this is what I'd like, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I think that should happen. The diplomat and the ambassador never include their own thoughts or feelings, their own agenda. The diplomat and the ambassador always says, this is the mind of the government. This is the mind of those who are in the power and authority and decision makers. And and, and they explain the mind of the government. And this is our job. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God in the world. We are diplomats of the kingdom of God to the world. And so when we are acting in the world... We are acting as ambassadors and diplomats to convey the mind of God. To do that, to convey the mind of God, we have to discern the mind of God, which means that we have to listen and perceive what that mind is. We have to listen and perceive what the mind of God is. That means that we have to listen before we pray. And sometimes we get it backwards don't we we start to say this is what i want this is what i think should happen and then if there's time i'll listen for a little bit and then see what your thoughts are we get it backwards we first have to listen we first have to hear from the lord to perceive what it is that he's doing so that then we can pray the mind of god so that we can say lord your will be done And let me be your servant. The second if is in verse 15. If you love me. If you love me. And again, sometimes we have this this anemic, this cheap understanding of love. That it's this warm feeling. It's this uh, nice way I have of thinking of another person. This is not the love that Jesus has at all. This love is a love that keeps his commandments. If we love him, we keep his commandments. That is, we act the way that he acts. We live the way that he calls us to live. So the believer, the father is in the son, is the son is in the believer. The believer is one that perceives the mind of God, that perceives his will, and in love keeps his commandments, does what the father has called us to do. And of course, the answer that we might give to all this is, I I can't do that. Right? I, I can't do that. It's too much. It's too much for me. And Jesus answers that question. Right? He says, you have help. I'm not asking you to do this by myself. In the same way that the Son does not act without the Father, so we will not act without the Son and with the helper. The helper. He says, another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Just as we say that his kingdom is established forever, the helper is with us forever. And the Holy Spirit, when he dwells in the believer, is the Spirit of truth. So we are able to receive and perceive the truth of God, to perceive His ways. And he says the world cannot see Him or know Him. And we're going to see that in a minute in Acts. We're going to see that the world, seeing the work and power of the Holy Spirit, won't understand it or be able to to perceive it. 
But he promises that in the same way that the Son dwells in the believers, so the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, will also dwell, tabernacle, make his home in the heart of the believer. So this promise is made to the apostles. They receive the Holy Spirit over and over. Jesus pours out his Spirit. He breathes on them. And then they have those 40 days where he appears to them after the resurrection. The 10 days of intense prayer and worship. And finally we read in the Acts of the Apostles chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit pours forth from them. In this miraculous way, the Holy Spirit comes upon them as a wind and as tongues of fire. You can see Luke saying, I don't know how else to describe this to you, right? It's like fire, it's like wind, it's like something that I've never experienced before. And all of a sudden, everybody gathered in the upper room is speaking in tongues. They have the power of the Holy Spirit and they're speaking in tongues. Now the speaking in tongues is a wonderful and important and powerful reversal of Babylon where they were dispersed in their focus on humanity in Babylon they are united in their worship of God through the power of the Holy Spirit and he is able to speak the language of dispersed Israel this is very important because all these Jews who have gathered for this wonderful feast of Pentecost are uh, in the dispersion they're um, in the diaspora these are Jews who have been sent all over the globe and they've been hungering and waiting they've been thirsting for the kingdom of God to be reestablished in Israel for the Romans to be kicked out for Herod to be put in his place for a rightful king out of the house of David to be set up and they were asking about this still in Acts chapter 1 if you remember around verse 7 right they say okay now when do we get our king and now they find out they get something more powerful it's important to note here that this miracle just as Jesus says is understood by the apostles and not by the people outside and this is something very important for the church to understand. That when people come from outside, if they don't know the Lord, and they hear speaking in tongues, they're going to think what? Those people are drunk. Right? This is a gift for the church within the church. The outsider will not understand because they do not know the Lord, and they'll think these people are crazy. But for those who were in Christ, who were waiting upon him, waiting upon the Holy Spirit, it transforms their hearts and minds, and Peter is given the power now to preach in the language of the people. He preaches in Greek, right? So now the tongues have stopped, and he is preaching in a language that all the people can understand, and he explains to them what this means. He explains to them about the Holy Spirit, and what does he do? He goes straight to the Old Testament, he goes straight to the Hebrew Scriptures, and he explains from the prophet Joel that this has been what's been promised to the people of God. The real miracle and transformation is in Peter and the apostles themselves. Right? They had been afraid. They had been locked in the room. They had not understood who Jesus was. They had not understood the power of the resurrection. They had not understood who the Holy Spirit was. They didn't understand the promise. They thought they were still awaiting for a king and a kingdom. And instead, what they have is the transformation of their hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit to give them faith, hope, and love. These are the virtues of the Christian life. And we see these evidenced by Peter and the apostles. First, they have faith. Peter has faith that if he is obedient, 
if he is faithful, if he is loyal to Christ and to the Holy Spirit, that these lives would be transformed. He didn't know how this people were going to perceive or how they were going to understand uh, the preaching and the gospel, but his job was to be faithful. When we talk about faith, sometimes we think of it as being just this idea that we have in our minds. Rather, it is faithfulness, it's loyalty, it's obedience, right? It's following through with what we've been told to do. It's listening and then acting in faithful obedience. So first he is faithful. The Lord tells him what to say and he says it. He has no control over how the people hear it, but he is obedient in proclaiming the gospel. Second, he has hope. That means that he has a desire, he has a hunger and a thirst to see the kingdom of God transform their lives. He really wants the kingdom of God to come to fruition. He wants to see their lives changed. He sees himself not as an outside participant, but he has an intense desire, a hunger and thirst to see their lives transformed, to see the Holy Spirit come into his listeners and for them to know who Christ is, for them to come into this indwelling, for Christ to make his home within them as believers. So hope is this, not just knowledge, this head knowledge, but it's this hunger and thirst for the things of God. And then finally, he has love. And love, of course, is the faithful keeping of the commandments to do as the Son has done. When we love somebody, we participate with them. We do what they need to have done. We do what is right for them to do. And the wonderful thing about love is the courage that it brings forth. Sometimes we look for courage within those Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. And courage is right at the heart of love. When we love somebody, when we know what it is that they need, then we forget about fear. We forget about embarrassment. We forget about caution. And we become bold. And we become strong. And so Peter's love for Christ and for his neighbor, for his listener, is so powerful that he has the boldness of speech that allows for the people who listen to repent and for their lives to be transformed for forever. The Holy Spirit is here today and ready to bestow upon us faith, hope, and love that we may be transformed and that we may be agents, ambassadors, diplomats of grace in the kingdom of God. Come Holy Spirit.